0: You're
1: listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good morning and thank you all for being here. My name is Jonathan Holloway. I'm the Artistic Director of the Melbourne International Arts Festival. And for the next hour, we're going to talk about the land on which we stand um, in the very broadest sense. Uh, We'd like to start, though, by inviting Jifa Greenaway who is an architect and also a wild one and
2: Gamalarae man from New South Wales to acknowledge country. Uh, Yama, or Waman as we say, down here on Kulin Nation Country. I'd first just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we're gathering, those of the Kulin Nation, particularly uh, the Bunwarang and the Wurundjeri as well. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And the reason I do that is to understand that this is not my mob, so I'm a guest here. Um, So it's important to acknowledge the unceded lands of the Kula Nation. Um, So we're actually walking on ancient ground. Um, Indigenous people have been on this land for at least 60,000 years, um, and so it's important to understand that we're walking on the footprints uh, of others and that this whole... Landscape and area is is actually quite a unique landscape, and so in, in times gone by, um, the Boonerung on the south of the of Birrung or the Yarra River, as it's better known, um, inhabited this landscape, and this was quite a um, a rich biodiverse landscape, which included um, billabongs and um, lagoons and and connections to the waterways, and it was also a rich area for aquaculture uh, and bird life. So it's really uh, Important place, and also a really um, apt place to build uh, a landscape and and to embed an opportunity here. So I'd just like to uh, welcome everybody here. Thank you. Thank you, Jifa. And
1: um, it is a fantastic conversation to have with these guests. Um, If if we just go back a short way about the land on which we stand, um, the land that we're standing on has been here for four and a half billion years. Uh, There has been life on that land for about three and a half billion years. Uh, although actually we worked out it's 3.8, but um, give or take 300 million years, uh, doesn't really matter at that point. And that um, obviously there's been continuous culture and storytelling told on this land by the Kulin nation for at least 60,000 years. This, uh, the foundations for this particular architectural structure have been here for four months. Um, and where we are sat here now was opened about 12 hours ago, uh, maybe 18 hours ago, Um, and uh, we arrived 15 minutes ago, and we'll be here for the next hour. So I just figured the thing about festivals is they take temporary ownership or temporary occupancy of something that is there, and our awareness of where we come from is really, really important. And so to talk about this land and the fact that the footprint of the festival, for example, covers the whole of metropolitan Melbourne and beyond. Um, We're joined by by three fabulous guests. Carame Pinos, who is the architect of this space, uh, based in Barcelona. She has made some of the most fabulous buildings all around the world. And most recently, or or fairly recently, the building just behind uh, the Boqueria in Barcelona just next to my favorite bar, Bar Mende Very small fact, but it's true. Um, And uh, divides her time between the US, between Spain being both Mallorca and Barcelona, and then wherever else she's making incredible work. And I'd like to start also by saying I think that this space is miraculous in the way it sits on the land, in the way it feels as though you are completely open to the elements And until it starts raining, you have no idea that it's still going to protect you at that moment. So I think that's a big round of applause for Carme. Thanks. Uh, Next is Jifa Greenaway, who is a lecturer at the University of Melbourne, focusing on indigenous curriculum practice, and also uh, an architect uh, and director of Greenaway Architects, who have... Created some fabulous, fabulous works, but, but divides his time between being a practising architect and interpreter of land and being um, an academic and studying where we've come from. And so he's from New South Wales, but has lived in Victoria for almost 40 years, I believe. So um, very much has a sense of, of this land. Please welcome Jifa. And the third guest um, was to be Robin Penty from the Royal Botanic Gardens, but unfortunately she's unable to make it. Uh, So we have the great pride of having Tim Entwistle, who is the director and chief executive of the Royal Botanic Gardens, having previously worked at Sydney Botanic Gardens and Kew in London before that. So um, uh, he was born in Victoria and has been working here at the Botanic Gardens for five years. And... So has a sense, as a botanist, and then someone who leads a major organization which both welcomes the public and also nurtures the land, has again a third, very different interpretation. So please welcome Tim. Uh, the, the rubric is I will, I will ask some questions uh, and we'll answer them and then 15 minutes before the end we'll open it up to uh, everybody else to answer ask some questions. Not answer some questions, that'll be awkward. Can if you want. It's up to you. Um, so, I'm going to start by saying, uh, by asking each person, starting with, um, starting with Tim to give... Uh, because obviously, my Spanish is pretty average. Uh, Carameh's English is very good. No. But very between us... Well. <laughs> but I will start this question with Tim uh, to give Carameh a moment. But what is your relation, Tim, to this land? And what, if you had to say one thing to a visitor, what should they bear in mind about where we are now currently sat?
3: Hmm. Well, well, for me, I, I work and, and I guess I, I exist over at the Botanic Gardens, which is just over the hill from here, and a, and a Botanic Garden that's 170 years old, so quite young, really, in the sense of the, the people that have lived on this land for 60,000 years. And for me, what's interesting, particularly about a Botanic Garden, is it's a, in some ways a, a very... Uh, European colonial concept, it's called Royal, and we're often struggling with that fact that we brought this idea of a botanic garden with uh, the settlers who brought it to this country and set it up in the city, and then what do you do with it now? How do, you, how do you respond to that? And the land, I think, is incredibly important, the place where the botanic garden sits. So we have a, a garden here in Melbourne. There's also one at Cranbourne, and both of them have a very strong sense of place. I mean, there are... There are, there's original vegetation. There are, there are trees that were there before the Botanic Garden. There are uh, river red gums, just. There's a couple hanging on, clinging on there that have existed before the gardens. And then we've added to those and we've, we've made, changed that landscape, if you like, into a, a Botanic Garden landscape. Now, that landscape for us is about people connecting to nature. It's, uh, I often talk about it as being a place for nature culture and science. It's a place where those three things thrive together. At the moment there's festival events on there. We're always talking to people about how important plants are. So as a place, I see it as a a sort of a, a, a physical place where those things can interact and people can connect with nature, culture and science and do that in this amazing piece of land that has an incredible rich history. And I should just, I won't go on forever, but I will just quickly add that we, one of the interesting things about that piece of land, or which is connected to here, is uh, the, the, the river running alongside was moved to create the Botanic Garden. So it was straightened up, and the lake that's in the gardens used to be the river. So we've changed that really important, iconic landscape, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about uh, in some ways, and we've tried over time to introduce some of that original local vegetation, but also, and something we're working on at the moment, is how to interpret and engage in that culture that has been there prior to the Botanic Garden. So, it's, I think it's a really interesting place for us to think about the land as being there for, as you said, uh, four and a half billion years, 60,000 years of stories, and then that overlay of the 170 years that's come through a Botanic Garden.
2: Thank you. Jifa. I come at this with a slightly different lens. The way I sort of position myself with regards to where we are and and understanding place is around this idea that there are layers of history and memory that reside within place. And what I'm endeavouring to do through my practice is to reveal um, some of those hidden narratives and start to activate and to amplify opportunities of how we can essentially look at the idea of people, purpose and place. And so what that necessitates really from from my um, view is to centre a connection to, to people using the mechanisms of creative um, ideas to start to centre opportunities where we can very much reference where we are. And so what I, I guess... Uh, endeavour to sort of push back on is a sort of a globalised construct of placemaking and start to reference an understanding of where we are. So within Victoria alone, for instance, there are 38 different language groups. The Kulin Nation is made up of five um, language groups. So whenever I'm operating on country, my starting point really is to reveal some of these understandings of of what actually existed here before, but then start to bring that into the present by using techniques of, of sort of adaption and interpretation, using all the techniques and capacities that we have as uh, creatives to then start to really find a, a new language. And so what's particularly uh, interesting, drawing upon my uh, Indigenous heritage is giving authenticity and starting to find opportunities to ensure that Indigenous voices are reflected back through the places in which we uh, work and, and operate in. So that, that for me is really the starting point of how I start to um, think about our role and our contribution and the responsibilities that we have um, to start to um, provide alternate ways of, of connecting to place. Great, thank you. And Karama, when you
1: started thinking about this space on this land, what were your thoughts about the place that you were working and the land here?
4: Yeah, always when I start a project, I, I try to understand the the site not only in physical way, also in in atmosphere, in cultural way. Uh, I need to understand the memory of the site. And, and a little, the culture. It mm. uh, was not the, my first time in, in Australia. And uh, now it's my sixth, when I come here uh, to make this pavilion, was the third time. I, 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 I was familiar, a little, not a lot, but a little familiar with Melbourne. It was important because it was not, Mm, it 's impossible no uh, when I received the commission by telephone uh, from Naomi for to make the, the pavilion, I started to sing in abstract and i didn 't reach to, to have no idea what to do. But when I arrive here uh, and, and I, I, I see the, the the, in the pavilion, I understood how work the pavilion what means this pavilion and I checked the the park and and I observed this small mound that I remember in, in a sunny day, the people sit in the mounds. It was so funny because uh, this small mountain is like a a seat because the, the the part was only the people was in this moment and I think I start with it, this idea, no? But also, you, know, you, you realize that uh, all is circles, no? And and this uh, also is not only the side; it's, it's the, the physical side. The, the landscape that I offer like a window, uh, the observation, here you see how you see the, the city. I wanted to stay here and to offer the city to the people that was here. And all these things uh, come from the knowledge of the site. Mm? And and also, for example, I worked uh, in, in, in Mexico, and in Mexico, uh, this, the the sensibility of the people is with big things uh, more monumental is not the way in in melbourne in you are more occidental no uh, And i i i find a little the the atmosphere that i want to offer i i i feel the uh, Australian, Malmurne, uh, people from Malmurne are very easy to enter in relation. I saw how it worked, the last pavilion, it was amazing how civilization was everything, and for that reason I, I planted this uh, shape open to make the people enter in relation to stay when it's an actuation like today, no? But if not, to see, to observe the park. Mm? And it was, it's more in, intuition, but I work a lot with intuition. I say to my student, we must have antennas. <laughs> How you say the antennas? <laughs> antennas eh, always. Eh? Because it's not so rational, is. To, to, to be very attentive and everything, to be very curious, uh, to spend time uh, observing, uh, observing the people, listen to the people, and then start the intuition, no? Yeah. Um.
1: Which answers my second question, which is about how you begin the process of understanding a place. We were talking a little about this before, about what you start with. I, somebody once said to me that curiosity and courtesy uh, can lead you around the world. But, so taking that idea that you start with the antennae and listening, um, Jifa, how, how do you, what do you, what's your big starting point when you approach new land or a new space? What, what, what are your active actions that you do in order to begin to get what you need from your antennae? The, the,
2: st- the starting point really is this notion of deep listening. Um, often when we're engaging with a particular community um, invariably we're the least knowledgeable people in the room. So the, the starting point really is that, that idea of sort of parking the ego at the door and engaging in a conversation. And, and a conversation where one acknowledges that often you're not the custodians of the knowledge that you need in order to start to develop Um, a mechanism to to find a way in. And so, you know, often it's a case of feeling like you're outside your comfort zone in some respects. So it does necessitate a dialogue and that dialogue really requires often people not to talk so much but to do a a lot of listening. Um, And that listening really starts to reveal fragments and and elements which can provide um, inspiration And so translating ideas and story and narrative and knowledge as the seed for inspiration is essentially the the starting point, from from my perspective.
1: Great. And Tim, when you're approaching uh, actually a different space, because often it's about the maintenance and the development of both the space itself, but also the relationship with audiences. uh, Audiences, that's entirely the wrong word. Attenders, people who are coming in to experience, people coming in to experience. Our, our guests, your guests.
3: <laughs> How? What? What's your starting point? Well, it's, it's it's interesting listening to that because I think it's quite it's the same for us and perhaps for you at a festival too. It, it isn't, I hope, about creating some legacy for yourself. And you do have The starting point is to listen, is to acknowledge what's going on and to to find out um, what people want, particularly in a botanic garden. But I was thinking as as both of you were speaking, the I'm, I've moved into a botanic garden as a director that's been here for a long time that was designed by William Guilfoyle, who was a very famous landscape designer in the 19th century who's created a landscape that's acknowledged around the world as one of the most beautiful uh, botanic gardens in the world. It really is a spectacular garden. So what's interesting as a director and someone coming in is how do you deal with this perfect, in inverted commas, landscape and, of course, it isn't. And, of course, the other fascinating thing about landscapes or living landscapes is they're changing they're all the time and a, a culture is active and every culture is evolving and changing and that's true of a botanic garden as well and so you're, you're looking to add something to that. So the starting point is this beautiful framework or bones to the garden but you should not be constrained by that. That should not be the ultimate gift I leave at the end of my tenure is exactly what Guilford built in, in 1846. That is not the point of the whole exercise. The The point is to to build on what he's created and if he was here today he'd be adjusting and and rearranging and and in fact I know he'd be walking around the garden saying get rid of all those trees that are uh, mucking up my sight lines those beautiful massive trees he'd be just in there saying clear that out because I used to have a great view through there so it is an evolving landscape and I think that's interesting in this conversation about both culture and landscapes that to me particularly there's something that uh, involves the current generation, involves thinking about the next generation, and are not a static thing to look after. And, uh, Kadama, when
1: you approach a project, this is an exception because you know the time scale. This is here for a temporary period of time. But you look back to what's gone before, and you look at what the space is now. How far forward do you look when you build a building that doesn't have a time limit? How are you thinking about ten years, a hundred years, five hundred years, or are you thinking about the first day it's used?
4: We must we must think for for hundred years <laughs> because it's not like a device that have a period of we build something and maybe in five years it's going to be destroyed, but maybe. Maybe not. The, the responsibility of an architect is, is is strong. It's very strong because we start um, destroying. How do you say destruyendo? destroying? Destroying. No, we we remove the earth. We cut uh, trees. We we destroy the topography to build something. Mm-hmm. Hmm? But our and no way back. When you cut an, a tree it's not going bad when you destroy a mountain to build something then then the responsibility to build it's enormous yeah. mm? and you must think that the your action is forever maybe you destroy the the building but you don't recuperate the landscape before the building yeah. mm? and because you remove you change the topography and, and for that reason, you must be very attentive of the context uh, and it's very different when you work in, in 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 the countryside or when you work in a city, when you work near uh, a old building with a lot of memory, each time is different huh? and each time my response my my response is correct is different for example now. I have an an ampliation of a very old hotel from the 18th century, Mm. and in a very beautiful landscape, and my ampliation has been almost hidden, Mm. to be very discreet, not to compete with the old building, but for example, La Masana in, in, in Barcelona, that I make a building that it's the, the protagonist on a big space, a, a big um, a square huh? in the center of Barcelona, but a very institutional uh, school, the oldest school of art in Barcelona. I want to be seen, uh, a strong presence, sculptural. Each time it's different. Each time you must be very attentive. Of how the, the contact asks you what because um, always a project is a response of a question and uh, the site asks something uh, the program asks something and our response is the, our action and the architecture hmm?
1: and and Jifa you you were saying similar things earlier about. Uh, about the relationship of ego and the relationship of you as a practitioner whose job is to um, interpret a, often a client 's wish or the wish of a client uh, to balance what 's wanted with what is there and with what 's possible and do, do you find do you find you approach that uh, to what balance do you find you approach that as an architect or as someone who has uh, a culture which has such a deep roots with the land? Which, which comes first for you?
2: If that's not a facile question, yeah, which the, I think it is now, I've asked it. There's always many competing forces. Um, and I, I think in many respects, I interrogate as a starting point, what is my philosophical and ethical underpinnings of what I'm doing and how I'm doing it? Um... And that sort of guides the, the values that inform the solution. And so sometimes a client needs to be led a little bit more. Um, sometimes it's really about um, reflecting back a conversation and trying to interpret or tease out the, the opportunities. Um, and so that, that is a challenge. That, that, that is an ongoing dialogue that one has... Um, and so in many respects we do act as a facilitator or or as a conduit to realise um, other people's um, aims and and aspirations and so but you also want to instil it with a certain level of poetics and and that's where one's own creativity comes in and you're trying to imbue it with a a particular um, hand and so but knowing too that it it is a, a collaboration ideally and that we acknowledge that that everyone is sort of contributing in and become essentially the the co designers in the outcome, um, yet we as the, the the designers often have a at an acute responsibility to sort of realize um, an opportunity to keep and maintain a certain level of integrity to the, the project
1: and and Tim, your role is Unique in this situation, in that you are balancing both a relationship with the land to a relationship with people, and um, whilst that's one of the aims of what you do, it's also, I imagine, one of the greatest tensions. And what, what's your sense of the the balance of conservation or botany or science with
3: showbiz? <laughs> with showbiz. Um, I'm actually... I I love that. I love the fact that we have that sort of creative tension, I often like to call it. And sometimes in a botanic garden, we have lovely internal debates, and I'm sure many of you have these in your own workplaces or where you live, about sort of purist ideals versus practicalities and and theory versus uh, uh, um, practice. And in the botanic garden, you do have that... We're a conservation organisation. We want to safeguard plants... But the reason we do that, and this is where we sort of test ourselves and I like to push it, is why do we do that? Why, what, why do we want to look after plants? And sometimes that's an intrinsic value that we all have and I think that's, that's very important. But it's also for the future of the planet. It's for the future of our people. It's for a feeling of wellness. It's health benefits. It's a whole, you know, I could run through the whole benefits of why it's good to have a few plants in the world. I think we can think of a few quite easily. But on top of that... To get people... What's interesting, I think, in the dynamic is that if people are not visiting the garden, then you're not achieving anything. You have the most beautiful garden in the world, but if no-one comes in through that door or that gate, really there is no point to that garden. So a big question is, how do you bring people in? How do you attract them? How do you get them to engage in our stories? And we do, we do that through creative events. We do that through our connection with the cultural life of Melbourne. And then we gently, if you like, introduce some of those really important um, ideas and concepts that we have about plants being important. But that's a way of getting people engaged with the place. So it's, it's not an either-or. And that's the... I'd like to move away from that, but it can happen in places like mine where it's, it's do you conserve, do you look after and protect? And I was, I was saying uh, before we started here, there's a, a great story at Kew Gardens in London where the, the first one of the early directors there was um, concerned about visitors having too many visitors in the garden, so they were closed in the morning so botanists could do their thing, you know, wander around and enjoy the plants and study and look as though they were scholarly and all that kind of thing. And then in the, the afternoon, all the great unwashed came in and saw the gardens. And he, uh, at one stage, the government complained about this, and his response was to actually increase the, the height of the wall so that people could not see in, because he figured the less people saw the gardens. The less people in the gardens, the better it was. Now, that's a kind of a good story to show you what our Botanic Garden today is not, and what our Melbourne gardens here are not.
1: And, and I, was, I also think it's interesting because you look at uh, great restaurants, and of course we don't get to go into them till about 12 o'clock, and before that people are preparing food and making wonderful meals, but from the moment you walk in, it's all about you as the people who are using the restaurant, not all about the kitchen, but but the preparation before, and more so in Spain with uh, uh, Ferran Adria uh, and El Bui, who was shut for six months of the year in order to experiment with food, so that by the time it reopened, six months later, everything had changed. Um, So I think that's a really interesting tension with architecture, but with the way we use land and overuse land. I, I have a, a, a an interesting, I, me, I remember there was a quote from Oscar Wilde when he was in the United States and he was asked, why do you think there's, there are so many social issues uh, and so much violence in the United States and he said, um, bad wallpaper and everyone, everyone thought he was being flippant but the truth is and his argument was n- um, nature is so astonishing and exquisite that at best, we can emulate it, and at worst, we destroy it or make something or replace it with something that is less beautiful than that which went before. And so that tension around making sure, uh, in effect, good wallpapers. So my question to Carme, which, and I was intrigued by your statement about this being the window onto the city, and that's why this is an o- open space. What other elements of this structure, this, this beautiful pavilion are specifically designed to highlight? Which bits do you think, I'm really proud of that mound or that curve? Or is there an element that you just go, nailed that? Apart from obviously the plastic above us, which means we don't know if it's raining anymore. Uh Apart from that.
4: No, no, no. uh, I think it's a a very complete uh, piece. I can say, uh, and also when I I sing a, a project, i don't think a project that have a face good face and bad fa bad face i i think always was i say, i say God see everything no? in 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 this sense my project you can uh, turn around yeah. and each view is different and each view you can say now here you see the city, you have the city, but this is not the front. It can be this, and this, and this, because it's like a piece of sculpture in a way. Because I, I like uh, to offer my uh, architect very sculptural, but with a lot of, of responsibility with the program. I like that my project work perfectly like a machine, but you observe like an sculptor eh? that you can and in this pavilion work very well. you turn around and all the perspectives are 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 beautiful are, i don't know i like <laughs> i don't have one that this is my favorite, and I think everything in the, in one piece. When they asked me, first, we, you, I thought this mountain, hmm? and you see it's two plants that fall, one support the other, and the the other point is supported by the mountain. Hmm? This, this triangle with this uh, mountain, and the other with the other mountain. No? And I imagine the people uh, sitting in the mountain, but The government sent me, no. No. Uh, Because it's dangerous if somebody can jump and go up to the top, to the roof. And uh, they asked me to make a fence. Hmm? I make the fence like part of the project. you observe it, it's it's not small, it's big. And it's like a spiral. And I held with the vegetation to this sense of a spiral. A spiral hmm? And there are a part that the people can use to sit, and the other part not, because uh, don't permit. <laughs> hmm? uh, and, and now I feel so proud of this fence, big. Huh? <laughs> and it's part of all the complex. And, uh, it's not this is beautiful, this is not beautiful. It's, it's complex. And also the and it's, A project must be this. Yeah. Complete. It, a good project, but I think this is a good project, <laughs> uh, must fit everything. Yeah. Uh, it's not one thing important or it's, it's All is like... Sorry, the English and my expression, but you understand. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: fabulous. Uh, and... Uh, I think festivals are very similar in that you have so many different competing elements and so many things that need to happen and practicalities and I, I always believe the o- the only thing about festivals is not to say yes to anything you don't want uh, just keep looking for the thing you want, it doesn't matter if there are if it's not what, if everything in it isn't the thing you want originally but just don't say yes to something you're not happy with, uh, If you if you do that that seems to work, I'm also I love that relationship to the practicality which i think in australia may be stronger than almost anywhere in the world and ava rothschild if you have a chance to see the uh, the exhibition at aca ava rothschild one of her works responds to the fact that there are more breeze blocks uh, protecting uh, people from um, vehicles and and terrorism and uh, domestic attacks in melbourne than anywhere else and that she observed that artists were then Responding to them and she liked some of them she didn't she she said she didn't like the knitting shouldn't have said that but it's true and then but then one of her works brings a whole series of breeze blocks into the gallery almost to reclaim the idea of this this structure Um, so taking that idea and the idea of of what does and doesn't work and it's a question G for for you as um, as the architect who's based here in Victoria Uh, what If you could change one element of Melbourne's architectural landscape or land, if you could change one thing, I I, I suspect saying you build an Apple store in Federation Square wouldn't be the best answer. I'm just, I don't know, I'm just guessing. If you could change one element of Melbourne's built environment or indeed um, non-built environment, what would it be?
2: Very difficult question. I guess I'd look at it bigger picture. For me, I think it's really about um, starting to take a more holistic approach to our design thinking... ...and starting to celebrate the role and the contribution that creatives can make... ...in starting to shape our places. And sort of moving beyond the sort of the museumization of culture... Um, to also acknowledge that the contribution that we're making now has tangible value. And, and what I mean by that really is that you know, we, we are in fact creating new artefacts. When we start to talk about preservation of what was, um, there is that challenge, and, and I think you, you spoke of it too in terms of you know, nothing ever changes, ...that we do need to adapt and change and evolve. That, that's what make who we are, really. Um, so having those opportunities... ...and, and knowing that the, the marks that we make in the landscape now... Are, ...are in fact creating new artefacts that we will celebrate in time... ...and starting to think about it um, beyond the sort of short term... And, ...and think of that sort of long-term trajectory... ...and, and knowing that what we create now will leave a legacy and and invariably we we don't build something and then knock it over two years later, or sometimes we do. Um, But importantly, our, our role and that the role of the creative sector can actually contribute to telling the stories of who we are and starting to enable us to share the experiences because I think... As technology takes hold and everything is mediated through technology, the experiences that we have in our places become more important. So the role of those designing those places takes on a greater significance because what we're trying to do is really bring people together.
1: And this is my final question, then I will open up uh, to questions from the audience for the panel. But um, when we talk, therefore, about the different way that land is mediated given technology, given different use of land, Tim, you, you are dealing with um, some of the oldest organisms in the world but also then embracing some of the newest technology. What what happens next?
3: Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite um, open to people connecting technology and nature together and, and it's always... The garden seems to be full of tensions and debates, which it is in some ways, but... Uh, We are about providing a connection to nature and and the real... As you say, these old plants, these... I mean, I I actually work on algae, which are the oldest, and they go right back 3.5 billion years, did you say? Yeah, 3.8 billion years. So that connection with ancient organisms, I think, is really interesting for us as a a human species. But the way we do it, and and I'm quite embracing of new technologies, and I think we, what we... It's not... You know, there's, there's obviously a thing... There's a nature deficit, if you like, and there's a, a disconnect between a lot of young people today. This is what data is showing. Uh, and real nature. So we might need to make that strong connection. But I'm not someone who says that means you throw the device away and you put the person in the middle of the forest and you just wait and hope they just engage. I'm quite comfortable trying to use the new technologies, use the information and to find ways to do that. So in a botanic garden, we have lots of signs. We have lovely old-fashioned um, uh, devices, and they have writing on them, the bits of wood and all that kind of thing. And that's a way of getting information across. So we, we could fill the gardens up with lots more signs, or we could have that information coming to you on your phone so that you connect with nature and then you find out more later. So for me, it is about connecting new ways of looking at the world and, 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 and nature... And also thinking about botanic gardens and gardens and natural spaces as kind of creative spaces too. So, you, if you're going to build a new garden today, given the way we interact and the way we, we interact with our devices, what would, you know, I was having a discussion with some landscape architect the other day, how, what would it look like? What would a, a garden that reflected the fact that we do actually absorb a lot of stuff through a device, would that alter the way we did a landscape? We didn't get to an answer, I must tell you. I hope you're not waiting for the answer to that question because we we couldn't work out what that would mean to the garden landscape other than it might mean that um, it it may be an ugly... we, We talked about ugly landscapes. We talked about creating things that shocked you and we talked about a whole different maybe way that somehow the, uh, the whole video game had, and, and the access to information had brought us to a new world of landscape. That's where we went. And I won't take you down that, that dark tunnel. But I think that connection is, um, is a, r- a really interesting one for us too. Fabulous. Does somebody in the audience have a question? And do we have a roving mic? I think we
1: do have a roving mic. Anyway, if somebody wants to raise their hands if you have a question. Otherwise, this can be very awkward um, yes, over here. And:
3: Just uh, congratulations. I think the, the structure is fabuloza. Um My question to each of you is, um, just briefly, how, how m- might climate change be impacting on
4: your work? Climate change. Uh, climate change. Yeah, a, uh, when I say that, I observe the land, the the territory, the context. The context also is the is the weather. I work a lot in Mexico, in Guadalajara. That the weather is amazing. It's always pri- uh, a spring, and I make a completely open building. The lobby is open. Uh, and uh, I manage not to use the conditioner air mm, with protection, with brisoleil. Uh, the weather made the. because in a way, architecture is, is a, prote- a protection of, of the weather and you must work with the weather. Uh, the traditional architecture that work much more that us with the common sense, is the weather that makes the difference of between one architecture from a, a, a place or another. Now with the technology, we manage and we can make everything in, everywhere. But I think we must think again with the common sense and, and take advantage of each weather to make one architecture or another, no? In Mediterranean, it's is the uh, this roof, these spaces between inside or outside, hmm? because the weather permit to stay outside. And here in Melbourne, I thought I can manage with this brisolet because the sun is, is strong, and I make uh, also to feel the natural. Hmm? and I make all the roof with, to see also when rain, to see the, the water, to see the, the different uh, uh, shadow with the sun. Hmm? It's the weather that make this pavilion. This pavilion, is uh, I respond with the what, uh, water, hmm? I respond with the sun, hmm? I respond with the view. It's, it's, it's natural that make this building.
3: Uh, in a botanic garden, hugely important. Um, we, we have in the Melbourne Gardens a thing we call the landscape succession plan. But the, the key word there is succession. We, when you plant a tree or a shrub or anything today, you're actually planting it for some time in the distant future, a tree perhaps for 100 years. So what's the climate in Melbourne going to be in 100 years? The models suggest it's going to be generally warmer, more days, five or six days, over 40 degrees each year, less rain, different times of year. We now review every planting we put in the gardens as to how it will tolerate Melbourne's climate. We look at analogs around the world and say, in fact, Barcelona is one we look at. And, you know, is, this is a climate that Melbourne may have a little bit of, a bit more like, and we look at what's being planted in ba- Barcelona. So to be a responsible gardener, uh, today you have to be planting for what you think the climate will be in 100 years and very sadly, uh, w- because of what we're doing, it's going to be a different climate.
2: Yeah, the, the, the main challenge we're noticing in our design projects is heat resilience of buildings. And, and this is where the intersection between landscape and architecture really kicks in because we can actually use landscape as a filter and as a mechanism to start to protect the building because, you know, when we start to get up to 50 degrees, which is being projected um, into our summers, you know, you can have a really well-designed building, but when it's 50 degrees, the building's going to be hot inside. It's not going to create the thermal comfort that we need. So we actually have to be more intelligent of using landscaping and starting to design in a holistic way.
1: Uh, the, one, the one thing I would say about uh, Melbourne architecture, I lived in Perth for four years, and apologies if there are any architects from Perth here, but um, there was this ex- an extraordinary fact that when it was 40 degrees outside it, outside, it was often 45 degrees inside. But when it went down to about 11 or 10, it would be colder inside. So it's almost like nothing had been learned from the European methodology of allowing a building to, to reverse what's outside. It literally amplified it um, there you go. That's actual fact. Uh, not interesting, but true. Does anyone another question, please? That, then I, I, have a, I have a question about um, what makes Melbourne unique? Chifa, for you, what makes Melbourne unique? Unique and whether that's in Australia or in the world, but what is it about here that you that, that when you're here, when you, re- when you travel and return, you think I'm back?
2: What I, I remember um, spending three or four months in Europe and, and, and coming back, and what I what became immediately apparent to me was how green the city is. Um, and, and I think the other th- aspect is the sort of cultural life in Melbourne is quite unique from, I think, anywhere else. Um, and there is something about how we participate. Mo- you know, more people attend our galleries than they attend the football, for instance. So it, it does demonstrate to me that there is a a real richness in terms of how we engage with the community more broadly. and And I think we kind of... Punch above our weight too in terms of how we actually project ourselves and the the quality of of work of um, particularly the creative sector um, demonstrates back to the rest of the country. So I'd probably position in those terms.
3: That that and the Botanic Garden. <laughs> but but I, I was I was going to give you a worse answer, which is I, I I'm a bit of an anti- uniqueness um, person, I, and and it comes from living in Sydney for a while as well. You, you know this whole sort of uh, what what makes Melbourne special. Kind of because you're here, it's special. I, I, look, it is a very special. The things you've mentioned, you've covered the the bases really. The 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 green, the the focus on trees. We actually do have a strong focus on parks and trees, the cultural life, the coffee, all that kind of stuff. Is tra- And particularly when I was in London, that attracted me back to Melbourne. But um, I do. I do think we've got to be a little bit more comfortable with the fact that um, we are where we are and we create this space around us and it's, got, it's a multicultural city with all kinds of elements and that's what I like to reflect in our garden too, that it isn't just about Melbourne, it's a whole world thing.
1: So... I- it's a great answer. I would disagree about the unique thing because I, I think if you take Melbourne as, a, as an Australian city, um, the thing that absolutely stunned me the first time I came here was standing in Flinders Street um, on a Wednesday evening and just watching the city being used by tens of thousands of people walking about. It reminded me of Spain. It reminded me of uh, South America and the idea. So of, that's
3: not very unique then. No, it's unique in
1: Australia, though. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm determined enough. not okay. to give this one in. Uh, but no, it was, it's unique in terms of actually almost the Anglophone-speaking world. I can think of no other um, English-influenced city in the world that still managed to accept the idea of the Ramblas as core to the behaviour. I'm saying this for the first time. I'm, I'm actually trying to think, can I? No, I can't. I win. So, I'm, I, but Karame, <laughs> uh what made it unique for you?
4: That was not my best moment. <laughs> no, I, I, I must say that uh, Melbourne remind me a lot of Barcelona. Yeah, it, it also because it's, it's not a very big city, and we have the Greek, yeah. you have also, it's very human, and very easy to understand. And this is a good thing of Melbourne, also in Barcelona. It's easy to understand, yeah. it's easy to to move, and you have the, the river. And it's more pleasant in Melbourne than Barcelona. Barcelona has a beautiful geography, but it's very dense and very noisy. Noisy, yeah? A lot of cars, a lot of rumour. Here, it's more calm. And, yeah, and the people look more civilisation. I think civilisation. I think because Australia is very big, but it's an island, and the people from the island are more calm. (laughs) You are a very big
0: island. (laughs) Um, I I also, I just want to tie together some of the things that you've been saying that interests me, you, you talked about responsibility. Some of you have mentioned this word responsibility and also drawing in the public. And, and um, I just think as, an, as a resident of Melbourne, you're all kind of talking about collaboration and context. I think you're also responsible. You've, you create things that are iconic and that's how you, that's where the people of Melbourne come in or Barcelona because we start to identify with our city because of things that have been created by architects or artists or... And I think that's really important as well. So don't downplay that. You know, you're in the vanguard of... There is a sort of vanguard aspect and, and it is international as well, you know, but the pride in your city because things have been created that maybe you couldn't imagine or that did tie things together in a really powerful way, you know, so I want to say thank you. But uh, I think that's a really important aspect of what you do as well.
1: That's great. And and from, from there, I have a question, which is, um, whilst I think we move forward in a way that is very strong, do we believe that we're getting it right in our acknowledgement of, of where we've come from and the land on which we stand? Do we... Is Melbourne getting it right as regards both moving forward but also respecting the history? I I don't know who I want to ask that to first. I feel like...
2: Jufa, I should ask you. I think we're getting there. There's still plenty more work to be done. There are still parts of our connection to this place which aren't being explored or the stories aren't being told. And it does necessitate looking inwards a bit and understanding the some of the difficult histories as well can actually be reflected back to us through... Uh, our interventions within our, our places and spaces. And, and I think there's also a celebratory aspect here which isn't being explored much at all. I, I think we can reference and connect to a deep history that resides here. We are, by extension, all connected to the oldest continuing culture uh, in the world. And that's something which we're normally celebrate um, we often travel very far distances to go to other places which have ancient cultures um, and lap up the experiences but we don't really do it here and and I think there is uh, capacity to start to bring forward some of these connections which can really I think um, tell our stories and, and tell them well.
3: I, I think that's spot on. If I could just add to that, I, I had a recent trip to Mexico City, only briefly, and uh, the, the person, a the friend who was there who was showing me around was excitedly telling me about the culture, showing me, showing me things, telling stories, experiencing the local culture, and I was thinking to myself, I don't have that connection here in Melbourne. I was being honest with myself, saying I don't feel that connection. And I did talk a bit when I got back, and I think... There's a lot of healing and a lot of conversations to still have that before I can probably feel that same degree of comfort. But that will be, I think, the test that we've succeeded is when we are all sharing and proud of that culture. But I think there is some work to do. I think it's, we are, as you said, it's started, but at the moment it's not, it, it's not comfortable enough for us to do that. And I think that, that's, that's where we should be heading.
1: Grounded. I think it's, uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much um, for all paying attention so beautifully and listening in this incredible space. Uh, Tim, thank you again for the inc- wonderful work you do at the Royal Botanic Gardens and, and bridging that gap between uh, algae and humans. Uh, Jifa, thank you for bringing an understanding of land and also of architecture and everything that you've brought to this city. And Kaname, uh, this space is miraculous and Um, and thank you so much for what you've created. We have obviously spent the last hour talking, um, uh, having been here for 4.5 billion years. The festival goes on for another 12 days, so uh, please do try and see as many things as you can within the festival, and again, thank you to everyone at M Pavilion for, for facilitating this event. Thank you very much.
0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.